Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 105, still talking about the acid test. Using or can we, how do we use nature to inform our thoughts about why are we here, what is our purpose, how are humans doing uh, on the planet as a species, some of the bigger questions that other fields like philosophy and psychology and ethics and religion, maybe even science, have tried to answer over time. And uh, I interpret our general condition of our circa 2022, almost 2023, relationship to both each other and the world uh, as uh, rating uh, a poor (laughs) or a failing grade. And that is sort of the drive or the impetus of asking the question, how are we doing? And since I haven't found really satisfactory answers in all of the other common fields, uh, I'm turning to a more nature-informed method, following something like the scientific method, the acid test, if you will. Does Does this investigation, this thought experiment, hold water? Like I said before, many people have said before me, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And so the question here is, is the model that is implicit in nature and what nature does uh, and doesn't do, although we can't really talk about or we're, we're, we're sort of um, <clears throat> speculating when we think about what nature doesn't do, but we look at patterns and repetition and general uh, rules that we can observe in natural systems, in nature itself. Do the, can we use these patterns to tell us something about how we're doing, what we could be doing better? And, uh, you know, what's the state of affairs in the world right now? And how are we doing as humans? All right, enough of that. I've done several episodes on what are the acid tests already. This part, this episode is about the assumptions I'm making in order to ask this question. I did a similar thing in my R versus should investigation where I stated the assumptions there. And here it's going to be a little bit different. And what I'm taking as assumptions are what I think we know about nature. And whether these specifics are right, it's sort of the working paradigm, right? I mean, we think, you know, I would argue that everything we know is not a truth. It is not something that we know. Even I've read several papers lately about physics because physics is sort of getting the the biggest head of all the sciences and sort of thinking that they are the most right or the most accurate about what we know and what the truth of the universe is. I despise all of that language. I despise the word proof. Uh, And in fact, I argue in my concentric circles example, there are some things we know, things we don't know, and then things we simply cannot know given you know, our facilities, our senses, our capacities, our biological, physiological limitations. Um, I don't I don't see anything wrong with that. I, I disagree fundamentally with people that think science and technology will explain everything there is to explain and will tell us about everything that we need to know. I just fundamentally think that's wrong. I don't think we're ever really right in the sense that we can know the truth. But what we can do is simplify the world into equations and explanations and sentences using words uh, to get the best explanation possible for our purposes, and then we can move forward uh, in life. You can always find an error term. 
And uh, I wrote a, a piece on Medium recently, um, inspired by my great buddy Paul Godola, who we do and I do a YouTube channel with called Being Better Being. You can find that on YouTube. Who has written a book called um, Peace and Integrity, Integrity and Peace, uh, Loving Your Neighbor. You can find it on Amazon by Paul Godola, and in there he, you know, he makes the point I've said before, and he said it on this podcast. Everyone thinks they're right. And that is the source of a lot of divisiveness in our culture. And I think if we all just made a little bit of room for the possibility that we may not be absolutely correct, it would change everything. And that's sort of what I'm getting at here. We don't. How do we ever know if we really know what we think we know? You can find that episode uh, on my webpage too, or on the podcast that you subscribe to, or on the YouTube channel. And so I'm just looking, you know to allow for us to be wrong. And I'm not saying that all of the things in these assumptions are right. They're just the best things that we have to move forward. And, and some of these things are that we are biological in nature. We live on the earth. We live in a universe. I accept sort of the big bang and the idea that matter was, you know, broken up into all these different um, atoms, which formed molecules which can form compounds which ultimately led led from a sort of abiotic existence to a biological uh, existence and the evolution of life and a carbon-based life that had organic molecules because they're carbon related and then um, the the way that nutrients and energy cycled through those life forms in order to let them grow and reproduce. And then the, uh, the way that DNA and sexual production evolved from sort of cell division, well, it doesn't matter. DNA was a part of all of it. Uh, as the sort of mechanism that allowed change because, uh, you know, wh- whether you anthropomorphize or not, but somehow uh, biology had to figure out through the process of natural selection that the abiotic environment was going to be changing all the time because of this, you know, directional explosion of matter, uh, um, and um, would necessarily require the capacity to respond to those changes, or else, you know, wouldn't be around, or that life simply wouldn't be that diverse and wouldn't grow. And so, there's a lot of assumptions inside that many of I've talked about on the podcast already, things like the idea that DNA wants to live forever. Biology wants to perpetuate itself. All of it wants to perpetuate itself, even though cells don't live forever. They're limited in capacity and, 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 and to varying degrees, neither do these forms of, of compounds or molecules, right? They break apart. Matter is neither created nor destroyed, but it does change forms. You know, an ecosystem is a given space through, uh, which nutri- energy flows and nutrients cycle because energy drives everything that's going to happen, whether that's life or whether that's bonds are breaking and compounds forming. Uh, and life, of course, requires nutrients. Those nutrients are never used up or then life would cease to exist. It has to necessarily be recycled and converted back to other forms in order for this thing to keep moving through time, which I think is an important consideration here is that all of this stuff is happening in a forward direction. So all those are assumptions uh, that are going to go uh, in, into this. And that in, because we're taking a human-centric biological approach, we have to necessarily consider what we know about how we work, both in the meeting our daily needs, you know, going about our business day-to-day kind of sense, and then the long-term kind of sense of DNA and, and, and immortality through sexual reproduction, uh, but also the abiotic 
environment in which we live and all of the other biological organisms that live with us uh, in that environment. <clears throat> so I think if I had to expand, that sort of sort of forms the, the biological, science things we have learned, models we have developed to help us understand these things, best available knowledge kind of stuff. There's a lot in there. Um, and then beyond us, there's all of the, you know, natural science stuff that we understand about other species, about how they behave, about their sexual um, reproduction and selection mechanisms and behaviors and about the uh, the environment in which we live, the the rock, the earth cycles, the geologic formations, you know, things like plate tectonics and, and, and magma and volcanic activity and how that uh, how nutrients cycle you know, like nitrogen and phosphorus and, and carbon and oxygen throughout the planet and how there's pools and flows and fluctuations and how there are patterns of change of temperature on the planet and ice ages and thaws um, that we can sort of all put all that stuff together. I uh, think, you know, uh, the creation of oxygen, of oxygen and the consumption of uh, CO2 by plants and the conversion of sunlight into matter. I mean, if nothing is, Nothing is more amazing than the process of photosynthesis through which a plant eats air and creates carbon-based tissue that fuels all life through the food web, except for chemoautotrophs and some uh, weird oddballs. Um, how water moves around the planet and, and always is plentiful. You know, this one thing I always think about in uh, the context of sort of climate change is nobody ever talks about oxygen. <laughs> Right, you know, we we talk about water and we talk about heat and we talk about food to a certain degree, but nothing's going to kill us faster than oxygen. You know, if our oxygen, if we couldn't guarantee that oxygen was going to be available tomorrow, wouldn't that create a panic <laughs> and sort of make all of these other problems like temperature go away real quick? Well, it turns out, luckily, that in the global oxygen cycle, there there are stores um, of this stuff that suggest that it's not going to disappear quickly. And as long as we have photosynthetic organisms on the planet creating oxygen, then certainly we don't have a problem. But on top of that, the way that it moves and the way that it cycles around the planet suggests that our consumption of it is not going to be suddenly restricted by the availability of it, right? But that's something that we, we don't talk about. And uh, maybe, it, and I don't think we don't talk about it because we understand it <laughs> or that we feel safe. We're just, we're just ignorant. You know, we don't. We don't know what we don't know. Uh, and oftentimes I think, and I just wrote an article on Medium about this, or I'm working on, a, on an episode about this and sort of informing my ideas, is that we're just we're focusing on the wrong problems. And I'm not going to punish, you know, more admonish somebody for trying to help, but oftentimes we end up working in areas that aren't as high priority or aren't as potentially dangerous or, or that don't offer as fruitful potential solutions as other areas. Um, and one of these uh, areas that we work is in sort of the, the, the immediate fire that's at our feet, right? If, if, if somebody's drowning, you're going to help them right now. Um, and that's the way it should be. We shouldn't ignore that in lieu of some other problem, but we tend to look at these like middle range problems. Um, let's, let's, let's spend billions of dollars working on building a better boat, you know, that has less likely to sink or that's a terrible example, but um, when really what we ought to be thinking about is the idea that uh, um, we don't need to use boats 
if we lived in more sort of locally uh, sourced and um, provided you know, villages or something like that, or we sort of change the way that humans live in groups or the way that we're governed or the way that we police ourselves or where we, from where we derive our energy or something like that. You know, those are, those are, we just haven't sat down and looked at the big picture. We're not very good at doing that. And part of that is because we're so divided. And so a lot of the other assumptions beyond the biological understanding and the abiotic things, how we think things work, we're going to use that best available knowledge to to inform us the, 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 our understanding of the natural world, which I'm, I'm going to say could be completely wrong, right? So this could be a completely flawed, but that's what we do. What else are we going to do? I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, so that's the, the first, the basis is sort of like our standard understanding of the natural sciences and the universe um, to sort of say that's what informs what a human being is. Uh and, and then beyond that, there's sort of these societal, sociological um, uh, systems that operate in the world. And the assumption I'm going to make with those is that they evolved under a, a, un, a non-natural set of selective forces, right? We made decisions about them that weren't diplomatic or democratic or fair or egalitarian or equal or whatever. We have to layer sort of human, human society rather than nature um, made those selections and choices about how we moved forward, particularly probably within the last 10,000 years, but certainly within the last 5,000 years. And then maybe within the last 500 years, more and more focused regulations, rules, laws, and norms were imposed in our societies, our, our interactions, our communities of humans, uh, our species, groups, populations, and communities, if you want to use ecological terms, uh, rather than natural forces. You know, if, if, if natural forces, like, uh, dare I say, competition, we'll talk about natural competition and unnatural competition a little bit, um, where competition is just basically saying resources are limited, what do we do? Well, in nature, species tend to make different decisions, right? Which aren't, that's, that are often cooperative and not competitive. Like, I'm not going to fight you over this last grape. No, we'll figure something out. I might, I'm going to go try these raspberries. You know, if you think it's cool, be cool. We're sort of like the ultimate conflict avoiders. I believe that. Some people think it's not true. We don't know. And so it's, it's a safety zone. It's a safe assumption that I'm allowed to make. Uh, that natural, the natural selective force would be to induce cooperation, whereas the non-natural selective force of society would be to induce competition or to use violence. You know, I want your island. You're not willing to give me your island. We're going to fight over this island. Voila, I have more resources. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and so I don't, I look at things like the caste system, inequality, slavery, as being non-natural results of decisions made by a select few humans and not sort of the natural world. Whereas natural selection are, 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 are more egalitarian, more winner, the winner take all isn't the right word, more equivalently imposed and less, um, um, biased or with, without a mission, 
right? It's sort of like, this is changing, and this is where the live or die comes in. It's like, you can either change with me or change against me, but some of you are going to do better, and some of you are going to do worse, and that's just the way it is. Whereas when humans induce what I'm calling non-natural selective forces, it's sort of like, (laughs) we have decided that we want this, and it's good for us, this select group, and all of you can live or die based basically on our decision. And there's no capacity for um, adjustment, acclimation, acclimatization, or adaptation by those individuals. They simply don't have the choice anymore. And, and, a, and, a, and an intermediate example of this would be something like sexual selection, um, where a, a lot of animals, once sexual reproduction became the dominant form of reproduction instead of simple cell division and diversity started to go crazy, then sexual selection started to work where presumably, and, and, and there's a, you know, a lot of room for argument here, uh, typically females would select mates based on their perceived capacity um, to perform a parental role or at least the passing of the genes part of that recombination. I've always found this really interesting and hard to believe, but it's hard to deny when you look at uh, sexual mating behaviors, uh, especially in some of the birds with the dancing and you know, even in something like fishes where there's a you know, sexual dimorphism, discoloration, large size fish or males are typically selected for because they can defend nests. There's, there's uh, extensive parental care involved where some of the better dancers, the more brightly colored males will actually turn out to be better parents, but we don't really know. It could just be some random uh, fact, right? It could just be like nature likes to play, you know, we don't know, but presumably, there was a selective force that that picked certain, you know, from a continuum of fish behavior. Certain males were more successful at reproduction, and others weren't. And so those became um, the fittest individuals that made it into the the next generation. And so presumably, you know, there's been a degree of, dare I say, choice. You know, or which I guess would be included in the natural selective forces, but. You know, even in the fish example or the sexual dimorphism example, all individuals still have, you know, an equivalent capacity to participate. You know, they're all invited to the party. Whereas once we started imposing human control of other humans' behavior, that equation got unbalanced. And that's really where things started. Um, and, and, and arguably, you would also say, well, two things. One, as humans became sort of more selective and more controlling and more systemized and less equal, um, a lot of good things happened after that point too. Technology, you know, medicine, longer lifespans, which you could argue or have pros and cons. Um, but you know, also there's a lot more suffering. There's a lot more struggle. There's a lot more what we can. Some many of us would consider to be negative outcomes, like poor treatment of other individuals. And so one could argue that this was also a selective process that had both pros and cons, both benefits. And it's really difficult to look back at millions of years of evolution and talk about the losers and whether or not there were 
really improvements because some of those losers, you know, may have been smarter than Einstein or more caring than Mother Teresa or better reproducers than, you know, whatever fish. Um, And so we don't know about the losers. We don't generally see them. And we move forward under the assumption that what we see was the most fit and therefore the quote unquote best for that example. It's an interesting conversation to have about humans. um, But I think when you look at a lot of the problems from today, I see inequality and it's related uh, trespassers, <laughs> uh, you know, whether it's income inequality or, or, or prejudice based on color, your skin or gender. Um, though I see those things as typically being less desired, right? If I'm, if I'm selecting for, quality species, I'm not going to choose a species to persist that has a system like that, you know, and I don't know how natural selection works into those things because it almost doesn't matter because again, because of probably of language, um, humans just have a whole nother thing going on and that's going to be an interesting topic. I did not see that coming into this episode that this idea of human-induced selection, non-natural selection, whatever we're going to end up calling it, was going to be part of the acid test, but certainly it is. And uh, I look forward to getting into that a little more. Next time, in episode 106, I think, I intend to get into a little bit more about the specific questions. You know, why am I here? What is our purpose? Who am I? You know, uh, am I... is life a, a, a non-dual? Is it a dualistic? What's the difference between sort of me as an individual and us as a community? What is connectedness? You know, how does that all play into these big questions? And hope, hopefully focus into some more general um, acid test type question or thought experiment instead of just saying these handful of pseudo-esoteric philosophical questions. So I hope, I hope, those assumptions make sense and that the general assumptions of science, where we are, what we've learned, what we think we know forming the baseline and then asking these questions about um, what we see in the world as being uh, selected for or not selected for and good and bad and how those things might relate going forward. As always, I appreciate your time. I look forward to your comments and your emails uh, and, and hopefully making this a discourse or, you know, forming some sort of co-opted project with you. If, you, if you're picking up what I'm laying down, it would behoove us both to know one another. Um, and as I always say, I'm Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience. And uh, thanks for your attention. I'll see you next time. Take it easy.